Hey gang, welcome to episode 129 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. Today on the show, our good friend Tommy Haunton of the Museum of Selfies and of Stash House here in Los Angeles uh, is coming on the show to talk about uh, both of his projects, and we're gonna have a we're gonna have a big, 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 big to talk. More on that in a second. First, the usual business. Um, with an addendum, a fun addendum. Uh, as you know, this is the part of the show where we beg you for money. Ha <laughs> ha! If only it wasn't true. Um, Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, our sustaining backers are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, and Lonnie Hanson. Um, and our latest backer is Meredith Crandall. Now, for those of you who have been following the, the Patreon drama, the drama of Patreon, um... You know that uh, Patreon pulled some shenanigans uh, a couple of weeks ago, redid their formula. Um, Some people lost a lot of money because of this. Um, We we got lucky. We lost like, I think like, I want to say seven, eight, 12 bucks, somewhere around there, you know, which is not insignificant when you consider that we get like 550 uh, a month. So, you know, that that there's there's a a percentage there. It's, it's, It's not nothing. Some people deleted, maybe because they just don't like the show anymore. Uh, some people, uh, some people reduced. All of which is totally fair, right? Um, all of it because Patreon was going to start passing on the fees to you, and everyone freaked out, rightfully so. And guess what? Now Patreon isn't. They'll find some other way to do the fees. There's probably some regulatory stuff. Blah blah blah. It's boring math. At the end of the day, they recognize the fact that they had put themselves between us. And you, in a way that was truly unfortunate and cost some people serious scratch. But the good news is they ain't going to do that. And the good news is, is that I think the CEO really understands, like, dude, dude saw the writing on the wall and, uh, and they've come back around. So if you were feeling shaky or you weren't sure or you were worried or you were just waiting for the shooter drop to see, well, how bad is this actually going to be? It's not going to happen that way. And if you were thinking, hey, you know what would be nice to do? It'd be nice to give No Persinium some money. Uh, that'd be awesome. Patreon.com slash No Persinium. We are also establishing a tip jar on via Gumroad on the stories at the website. And I encourage you to go to the website and check out the stories. There is so much going on right now. Um, the Slack community which I know I haven't talked about in a long time, uh, as we hit on the road to the Immersive Design Summit, the Slack community has exploded. It has expanded. Um, there, There's a lot more people on now. <laughs> um, I'd give you an exact number, but I don't want to get it wrong. Suffice it to say, more people from more places. Uh, it's truly an international community now. Um, and I encourage you to jump in there, explore, meet folks, check out the different channels, check out the channel for your region. Uh, I know that I, I feel myself gravitating back towards it myself. Uh, I just said myself twice. I do not write this part of the show. We all know that. Um, but hey, that's all housekeeping business, not what you're here for. You're here for the good stuff. We'll do more housekeeping maybe later. I don't know. I got the stuff on my mind. Let's set this one up. This is a long one. This is a big, big, long one. Why? Because Tommy and I, we talk. We talk. It's what we do. 
Um, Tommy and I met um, a few, a couple of years ago. The mist of time are starting to blur. Uh, I do remember that our first conversation was at Cafe Vita in Silver Lake, right across from the Vista, where uh, last night uh, we saw Star Wars together. So, um, yes, Tommy's someone I hang out with. Um, so this is one of those, like, it's one of Noah's friends. Um, but that also means that we're, like, super comfortable. Um, why did I say it like that? I'm air quoting right now, just so you know. I'm air quoting. Um, Tommy was hiding something from me for a while. Tommy was hiding that he was working on an Instagram palace, uh, an Instagram palace that they call the Museum of Selfies, which makes it a super self-aware Instagram palace. Uh, this is something he's put together in Glendale with a buddy. Uh, the, the Orden story is going to get in here. We're going to dive deep on art. Like, this is an unexpected conversation, right? One, I didn't expect Tommy to be working on this project. Two, uh, you're you're not going to expect necessarily where we go here. You may have a different view of these things by the time you're done. Then again, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the world. 29 Rooms is open. Some people are having a real allergic reaction to how much, uh, how much brand integration there is at this edition of 29 Rooms. I'm going to be checking it out this weekend. I'm really curious. Um, Candytopia and Happy Place uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, they're having permitting issues, something that our little community is very familiar with. Um, so that just hit. Uh, Candytopia is getting delayed. Um, this this is this is a this is a big problem for them. Um, and I don't say that in like a Schadenfreude way. Uh, my housemate works for the people putting on Candytopia, so uh, it's a big problem for them, uh, and kind of a big problem for me. Uh, therefore. Um, you know, that's the thing. No matter what I do, can't escape this universe. Um, that's on that side of things. We're also going to talk about um, Stash House, which is the escape room that he's opening up that had a preview at Think Tank a while ago. Um, what else to say? Uh, I need to set up who Tommy is. Tommy Haunton, uh, you're going to learn a lot about him. I learned a lot about him, where he came from, uh, how he got out here, what he was doing. Uh, but in terms of our meeting, um, we met a couple of years ago because Tommy wanted to talk about this stuff. We talked, um, and then he sort of, uh, you know, got involved in the the sort of community scene we've got out here. Um, we talked some more, and when it came time to form Leia, the Leave Experiential and Immersive Artists, I knew that I wanted Tommy to be part of that. Um, he he was already part of the permitting team that Cole Rosner of Play had put together. Uh, that was sort of uh, one of the first things that we had before we were on the way to being like a full entity. Cole's on a sabbatical right now, so Tommy's actually taking over for the permitting team. Uh, he's also one of the founding members of Leia itself, which you know we're going to spin up into a 501c6. Nothing says fun like reading bylaws uh, in preparation to write bylaws. Let me tell you, thrilling. Ooh, page turners. Um, and um, he's smart. He's smart. He's a smart guy. Smart guy. I appreciate his uh, his perspective on, on everything, really. All right. That's enough setup. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Get ready to take notes. Oh, get ready to take notes. And with that, here we go. <laughs> Tommy. Hello. Hey. Hi. Um, as I probably mentioned in the cold open, Tommy and I, uh, I guess technically we're colleagues, right? Yeah, I guess so. Because like Leia means that we're colleagues. 
Um, it's very official sounding. It is very official sounding. So that's that's your disclosure here. It's also why you won't find me reviewing <laughs> any of Tommy's projects over the next few months, because that's a conflict of interest. I'm also glad because I'd be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Giving people in who I respect is really terrifying. Yeah, and like, the, truth be told, like I, I, I'm harsher. I'm harsher on my friends than I am on other people because I expect them to be able to take it. Um, The knives come out. It's like, well, you know what you did wrong. Um, But uh, we're here to talk today about something that I had no idea you were working on. A lot of people didn't. Until about nine days ago or something (laughs) as of this. Yeah. Um, And and I will admit, I will admit when when I was sent the the press release... For the Museum of the Selfie? Or the Museum of Selfies? The Museum of Selfies is the official title. The Museum of Selfies. Yes. Uh, When I was sent the press release for the Museum of Selfies, (laughs) I turned to Anthony and I said, I just don't know about this one, man. Like, I don't... What is this thing? It's just another Instagram palace. Like, what's going on? Like, at least they're self-aware, which I think is a a key point here. Yeah. And then... about a week after that, or maybe a little longer, <laughs> yeah. uh, you you mentioned that you were you were dealing with you know that your your the people you were doing some PR with uh, had had handed you something, and I was like, oh oh PR for Stash House, which is the project that I knew you were working on, which mm-hmm. we'll get in a bit. And he's like, no no no, a different thing, the Museum of Selfies. Yes. And at that point, I was like, what the what? You're, what, huh? And then the, another round of press release came out, brought up your name. And suddenly I felt deeply betrayed. No. Um, <laughs> so winter in Los Angeles is apparently the time for the Insta Playground. Yes. Uh, 29 Rooms just opened up. Candytopia has their press preview on Star... Candyopolis, isn't it? No, it's Candytopia. Candy- You're right, Candy. We're a Candytopia household. My housemate's actually working on Oh, it. Yeah. okay. Yeah, Which is Candytopia. Also- What's Candy? What's Opolis? Is something... Uh, Nothing Opolis yet. Opolis. There is... I thought... Yeah, there, 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 there is an Opolis. Is there? Is there? Oh, I don't know. They all blur together. Okay, it does blur together. Oh, by the way, this is an After Dark episode. We're drinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fair warning. <laughs> Uh, no, my housemate's working on uh, Candytopia. Oh, so, nice. Which is why she's uh, not going to be there when we see Star Wars. Because <laughs> it's their pre- press preview night, oh, which is very, very not... Dangerous time. Dear, dear, dear press people, uh, this, will, this will air right like the day afterwards. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, this is why we are opening in January when nothing good happens. Which is, which is smart. Um, happy places open... Yeah. Um, 29 Rooms, which is sort of the er mm. one of this, uh, is open uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, Museum of Ice Cream moved on. Uh, the the color experience, whatever's up in San Francisco. But like, it's just sort of like every time I turn around, there's like new. And then there's, of course, not in exactly the same vein, you know, the Museum of Broken Relationships yeah. or Jurassic Technology, uh, the He's... Museum of. of, of uh, Disasters or disappointments or something. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the recent pop-ups. I think yeah. yeah. There's there's an interesting weird thing with museums and the idea that a lot of them toss out the name without actually being them. Right. At least broken relationships, drastic technology, like the one more offbeat ones are actually museums. Um, and yeah. don't get me wrong, like we live in the darkest of all times, and so the chance to actually have a space. <laughs> and we, we've talked about this, but the idea, like the big little vice event I worked on, like it's fun to be soapy and not have something that's so deep and tragic yes. and important all the time. Yes. And so I get oh that God, people yes. want to just go in for a couple hours of escapist fare. Like mm-hmm. I just came from an event. Uh, I volunteer at an organization called 826, and they're having Loteria, which is basically like the um, Mexican lottery with the uh, classic 
figures, they're not fortune-telling cards, but they're like Loteria cards. Right. And they acknowledge that some of them are, you know, problematic, uh, including like El Negrito and the, you know, the savage Indian and like very outdated imagery. But you have basically a group of people that just want to come and put beans on a lottery thing and have fun family food and just hang out. And it's like really joyous. And so I get that people want just to have those moments of having fun, taking photos and hanging out. Yeah. So I understand the need for them. The issue that I have with them is the just rampant, obvious commercialization of it. And there's one of them that basically every step you take through the process of each room and each item in the gift shop has been very carefully curated to reflect branding and just be like, this was made in a boardroom Mm. to sell tickets. And that part was really frustrating, seeing kind of how all this has come about. The uh, inception of this project was... A while ago, uh, Tyre owns an escape. Yeah, so I have a co-creator, a name Tyre Memdov. He is a creator uh, of one of the locations of 60 Out mm. uh, on Western, which I really enjoy his rooms. Uh, we met a, over a year and a half ago, two years ago almost, uh, when I played his rooms. And we had a mutual friend who kind of worked on a project with us but didn't go anywhere. But we just got along so well that when he had this idea to just do something interesting in this vein, he's like, do you want to work together? I'm like, yeah, why not? I just, I, I like working with creative people. So we sat down and kind of brainstormed a completely different idea that went, <laughs> that went nowhere. But over the course of this brainstorming, we really hit on this odd idea of what are people doing at these events or these, these, um, these, these museums or these locations? And all these weird ideas that I absorbed kind of started coming to a head, which was there was there were two images that were really impactful for this to me. One was a heat map of geotagged photos being uploaded to Instagram mm-hmm. and to uh, Flickr and all the popular social sharing photo sites. Right. And it was basically a heat map of where people take photos across Los Angeles. Mm. And it's really interesting because you can pretty much pick... You know, and basically, so it was a map of Los Angeles based on the heat map of where photos oh, are taken. Like a distorted map of Los Angeles? Well, not distorted. Or, it's okay. basically, imagine you took a giant overhead view of the city from the coast all the way to downtown, up north maybe by, um, not the 134, but like the 5 and the 405, like up north. Oh, yeah, Silmar. Um, yeah, up to like Silmar, a little bit south of that, and then uh, down to like the South Bay. So looking at that map, you would see some areas really filled in. Like Universal Studios and Disneyland, of course. Mm-hmm. But then you'd have like the college campus. This would be really lit up. The beach, the coastline is very lit up. But then some of the most interesting ones were like LACMA was really lit up. And any museum in town was lit up. Yeah. And so it was fascinating looking at these spots. And you could really drill in down to like the street level view of where was the most popular thing to take a photo of. Is that link still around? It's not. This, oh. this thing is, you can see like old updated images, but it's not interactive anymore. Okay. But I was really fascinated by, like, what are people drawn to? And, like, the street lamps in front of LACMA. Oh, yeah. No, that's, like, I can't remember the name of the installation at this very moment. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a real name. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's the, that's the city's most popular wedding photography. Yeah. Like, weddings and quinceaneras. Like, that's where you go get to those two pictures there. And right? it's, like, why is it this? I mean, they're just, it's literally the same street lamp, you know, copied for like four or five of them and then done again and just it's these objects that are very mundane that if you walk by them on the street you're going to ignore them but when you put a number of them in a row it just makes it compelling and actually to give off light there's something really special though about how people play and engage with that space and 
I, I I don't begrudge anyone for wanting to have a playful moment like that. It's like, it's it's very fun, it's very bright. And the idea of what about creating a space that encourages that, but it's more than just a space to take cool photos like these Instagram palaces, but rather something where you can kind of learn. And we were talking about how a lot of the installations out when we were designing this stuff uh, were very self-serious, talking about how important they were. Mm. And I... I don't believe that this is important. Like, I think this is helpful <laughs> and it's fun to blow off steam, but you're not saving the world. You're allowing people a few hours to blow off some steam and take some cool photos, but you're not doing anything deep. Like, you're not giving medicine to children in Africa. You're not, you know, curing cancer. You're not doing something that's meaningful. You're... So when people got... It got very disingenuous. And so we would sit there and kind of mock them and just be like, this is really silly. They're not even museums. So the idea really came to when Tyre mentioned, what about the Museum of Selfies? We cut out the middleman and just say, this is what we are. Mm. And I was really intrigued, but then I almost threw up in my mouth because the term, <laughs> and this is what's crazy, is the other interviews we've done, like LA Magazine, people begrudgingly admit that they were like, I thought the subject was stupid. Mm-hmm. And we knew that going full out. We sat yeah. with our PR team and we're like, look, people are going to be the haters and they're going to be really... Um, negative about it we fully embrace it like we want the haters to show up yeah. we want the skeptics to show up yeah because this is going to be a a definitive like going full force in this direction and people are going to have a very instinctual reaction not just to the instagram palace like movement but also to the term and the the name of it yeah so we decided to are just you reselling branded selfie sticks we will you will with umbrellas see see you've thought of everything so, but that thing is like with a sense of irony because yeah. I, I, people who know me, especially personally, like I was talking. It was a shock in some yeah. ways. Like, like Tommy, yeah. you're doing like, I, all the talk of the Glendale project suddenly made sense, but yeah. at the same time, I'm like, oh, what's going on, man? Yeah, people like, who know me know I don't do social media. That I erased my Facebook account years ago. I have a fake one now that I use only for um, No Pro and for escape room events. That is not even my real name. Um, I although it's not hard to figure out who you it, are, it's, but it's very hard to like remember how yes, to spell it. Yes, even it though is. it's just like a, it's, oftentimes it's like, damn it, Tommy, I just want to add you this thing, and like, oh god, it's like a freaking puzzle. Everything's a puzzle with you. But so. literally, I don't use it for anything. Like my my profile's empty. Like I only use it because it's a means to an end for communication for some people, exactly. and I, I've accepted that is a tool, no more, you know, evil than my SMS app. Right. But that's basically it. So. People, like, I was telling a friend last night who's like, you are, like, the least connected social media person I know. And that's, for me, very deliberate. I think social media is an evil thing. Uh, sorry, not evil. I think social media oh, I people... Wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily disagree. Yeah. But... So that's what I was so intrigued by the idea, though, is, like, what would pull me into this? Mm. And so I only work on projects that interest me. Unless you hand me a bag of money, and I guess that interests me. But, you know, because I like not having to, uh, you know, yeah, no, I, eat I know. cat food. I know. Um, so I know about bags of yeah. money. So a bag of money interests me, but anything below that, some ridiculous amount of money, like, I want to find some angle that interests me. And even then, if someone said, I want to pay you a, a crazy amount of money to do something, I would still have to find some angle that interests me. Mm-hmm. So with this, the angle I was thinking about was... These are empty and stupid and shallow and selfies. The whole culture is just Kardashian-esque and Hilton-esque and just dumb. And it's, yeah, exactly. As, as Noah holds up his phone and, like, imitates that sort of culture of holding up a phone and doing, oh, God. Yeah, see, that, that makes, that, that pains me. That pains me as you're taking selfies right now. 
Um, well, it's the only thing that makes sense is to do a selfie of us, of you complaining about selfies for the cover of the episode where we talk about the museum. As I'm holding so my beer, that will actually be on the feed. That is horrifying, and I apologize <laughs> to anyone that has to look at that. So. The idea of the hardest thing is finding photos for bodies. <laughs> true. I should and I, I should be and well, but like our world has become fully performative. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. our lives are performative now. So, yeah. Sorry. No. So yeah. So basically, the idea that intrigued me and made me want to go down this path was this is actually not people. People are easy to ascribe, and you can look at this through every generation. Uh, going back to the invention of writing, that people say this current generation or the next one is like the downfall or the sign of the end of the world or awful. The, the next generation is the cohort that started in 2000 is called Generation Z. Ugh. Like, it's going to be Generation AA next? Yeah. I mean, what's what's left? <laughs> what's left? It's the final generation. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't, based on how things are going, it wouldn't shock me if this was the final generation, but... Uh, chin chin, you know. Yeah. All things being said, you know, I... I realized that selfies are not that far from how human beings have behaved for millennia. And the way I started breaking it down and sitting down with Tyre and going over, this is how we frame it. That human beings have, since the dawn of time and the dawn of art, depicted human beings. Mm. If you look at the earliest art on cave walls or out of hunks of stone and clay, you have people. They weren't very uh, realistically dumb, but they created people in the most you know, simplest form they could do it at, which is just simple, you know, charcoal on a wall or, or you know, pigment on a wall or clay crafted into some rudimentary figure. Yeah. And as you trace, as art evolved and as human society became more advanced, every form of art has had depictions of people. And when you look at the most famous portrait of all time, it's Mona Lisa, it's a portrait. And look at the most famous painting, it's still a portrait. What separates Mona Lisa from... A serious portrait studio session is is just the convenience of it and technology. That's it. And if you look at how over the course of art, people have always depicted other people. And that artists began depicting themselves. It was a style of status and culture. And Raphael put himself in the School of Athens. So you have the idea that this isn't that different than taking your own photo. And then so we traced it through art. But then I'm like, there are other things that had to converge to make this happen. How did we get to the point where people could take a selfie, I can pull up my camera, whip it out from my phone, and have a shortcut on my phone, and have a, a photo in three seconds, in two seconds? Mm-hmm. How did we get to this point? And I could share it with you a second later, too. Yeah. How did we get to this point? We got to this point not just through art. Art is the, the major kind of um, lifespan of, of, of how people depict each other and, and convey it. But then you look at photography. As soon as photography comes out, now you don't have to rely on artists that you hire because that was the, only the wealthy's privilege. Right. You have the ability to hire someone to depict you. And even then, in, the, in those depictions, you had mirrors and oranges and pineapples displaying your wealth. So even having your own image on a canvas was a style of status. But moving to photography, that was a great democratization and, and, and making it ubiquitous. You had the ability, if you were willing to sit still for half an hour, have your photo taken, which was a realistic depiction of what you were. And there's a daguerreotype of a man doing his own self-image from 1863. Hmm. And I'm sure there are ones that have happened earlier that we just have lost to time. So the idea that as soon as people could capture an image, you know, at some point I'm sure a dick pic would come out, but people also just depict themselves. And so photography obviously becomes more advanced. Now I'm thinking about a dick derogatype. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's what, half an hour for a derogatype? Pretty much, yeah. Time? Sometimes oh. even longer. And <laughs> And then, yeah, imagine you just you walk over to, walk over to someone's house. 
I'm just thinking the yeah, all yeah. of the connotations yeah. of a half hour long Dick Toronto. She's like, come on, come on, stab, stab, stab. <laughs> Apologize yeah. to everybody, but once once it gets in your head, you just can't get rid of the image. And then delivering it, like knocking on the lady's door and like oh, with, God. with a calling card, you up, <laughs> sliding it under the door and running away. <laughs> Full sooth. <laughs> no, that's 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 too early. Too early. Oh God. So, it, I mean, human nature has not changed much. People, no, it hasn't. People have had the same ideas. Although, sorry, sidebar, because like the, the cads would have calling cards in the Victorian era mm. that would say, like, look this up online. Like a, a Victorian cads calling cards, they would just say lewd things on them. They, they would hand the ladies. So like, side- I guess that was like a way to slide into a DM is just like it's physically like, handing yeah, you a card. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's what. That's what. You know, I am not joking. Unless, unless that was an elaborate prank, <laughs> like that, like showed up on the internet around circa like 1998. I hope like, it's not. I hope that's real. Yeah. No. I will. I will. I will try and find links for the show. Notes. Yeah. I want to see proof of this. Yeah. Um. So yeah, people have not changed much, and tracing this over the art cycle over the cycle of technology and then as soon as technology hits the point where the computer age begins and then the internet pops up you know the first internet ever uploaded internet ever uploaded yeah the first picture ever uploaded to the internet is this really banal image of uh, four women who worked at cern who were in a doo-wop group that uh someone photoshopped really badly but that was i guess the best they could do a, a an album cover for them that's mm. the first image ever uploaded to the actual internet. And it wasn't cats. It was not cats. I'm disappointed. So what's fascinating is that when you look at that first image, that was the very beginning of how many billions of images that are out there now. And you also have cameras, which eventually became digital. And once they became digital, you were able to start folding them into phones, which then you began carrying in your pocket, which then even now have a front-facing lens that you can do uh, a photo with out of convenience because they know people want to take selfies. So it's this odd scenario where if, oh, and then you also have uh, social media because why take an image if you can't share it? You know, what would be the analog version of, of, of social media is having a photo album be like, look at all my photos. Like everyone you walk up to, look at all my photos. Like here's my photo album, look through it. Come on, look through it. And handing <laughs> someone a photo album to flip through. So it's, it is a fascinating kind of look at over time, all these things had to happen. And if one of the ingredients was missing, I don't know what if it would have happened. So it's this fascinating kind of look at selfies through the lens of art, of science, of technology, of culture. And that at the end of the day, you can say this is the downfall of mankind, but people have been saying that for a long time. And this is really not anything different than what people have been doing for 40,000 years. Yeah, the, the, the thing that's different in our day and age is just the speed with which everything yes. happens. So this it's convenient. So this is the big question we're asking. We're not answering it because what is art is a constant question that people argue over all the time. Right. The question of are selfies art mm-hmm. is a question that we propose. And the idea of even looking at there's a documentary I love called Tim's Vermeer, which I was fascinated by. Mm. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend watching it. But the question of and this comes up in anything that people do, anything creative or with art, the arts, is, is the difficulty of which creating something uh, and putting the work into making it, does that reflect the quality of it? If I sit here and crap out some magical drawing, 
you know, in two seconds and give it to you and you put it on a wall, is that any better than a drawing that someone had spent years on? For whatever reason, people have this fascination that people are savants mm. and that if you create something with your own hand and the, the palette and some paint and a canvas and that's it, that it is worthy of inclusion in a museum. But using some technological tool, whether it's a modern computer or something more primitive going back into time, that reduces the quality of the art. So basically, there's an explosion in Renaissance art. If you look at early artists and the frescoes on church walls, they look more like the watercolor paintings of children. Mm. And for whatever reason, art begins to explode in the Renaissance, where the quality of painting drastically increases, where it becomes more realistic, more beautiful. And if you look at something like Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors, that skull on that is haunting. There is no way an artist could have painted that without some use of projection or some imagery manipulation that was able to project it for them to paint it. Because it's basically, if you haven't seen it, which you should look it up, it's an image of a skull, but it is basically stretched out and condensed as if it's a piece of flat cardboard, but you can still see what it is. Mm. I'm thinking back to my theater history classes and to our discussion of the Renaissance then, and the emphasis that was put on the discovery of, or maybe in some cases the rediscovery of perspective, yeah, and perspective in art, mm-hmm. and this 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 idea that we go from like a very flat, yeah, you know, perspective less to suddenly there's depth, yeah, and that addition of the third dimension really opened up art, and and there's something poetic to the fact that it's perspective. We art gained a new perspective, and suddenly the world change and the world sort of the the creative force was unleashed and and sort of exploded and when it comes to immersive Mm -hmm. right i feel very much that immersive as a whole this this grand unified field which holds experiential theater and virtual reality together with theme parks and with and with these instagram palaces that it's about exploring perspective and exploring the in internalities and externalities of mm-hmm. perspective and, yeah. and, and everything's sort of fungible in there so that we've we've hit that moment i mean this is the thing like we're because of the internet because of the speed with which things go because of the degree to which we're exposed to other people's perspectives mm-hmm. we're in a renaissance yeah right now and i think yeah I, I think the big thing is that people see the fact that something can be done taken can be done easily and quickly and be taken in a moment's notice and shared quickly means it's of no value. And I don't necessarily disagree because there is an issue with curation. Um, data is, is, pure data is overwhelming. Right. Um, but looking at art back in ancient times, going all the way to the Renaissance, you look at like going back to Tim's Vermeer, the purpose of the documentary is a guy named Tim, who's an inventor and friend of the pen and teller who made it, uh, basically says that he thinks he forgot how Vermeer painted and he thinks he used a mirror because you can't project an image onto a wall because the light itself will taint if you just trace over it. So mm-hmm. you can't do a one-to-one translation of an image on a wall and paint over it because you're not going to know what the paint color actually is because the light that you're painting over is, is affecting it. So he believes he used a tiny mirror akin to the one the dentist used to stick in your mouth. Mm. And he basically would have the image behind him. And by having a series of mirrors reflecting it, he could sit there with the image, with the mirror on paper and paint at the edge of what he was painting behind him and if he got the right color the edge of the mirror would become invisible and you just keep painting along until you recreate what's behind you oh, wow. and spoiler in the movie he does create a vermeer 
he recreates a very famous painting of Vermeer's uh, by having it created behind him and simply painting it the same method. And it's fascinating because... So, so with the idea being that Vermeer would put his subject yes. in the spot where yes. Tim puts a Vermeer. Exactly. Yeah. And so the idea that he had the scene created in real life with his family, mm-hmm. and he'd have people, depending on when you were having someone pose, you'd make sure they're there during the same period of time every day because the light would have to come in, and you would have them stand on the spot, and then you'd paint them. And once the scene was done, you'd go to the next part of the painting and just paint in sections. And at the end of the day, yes, you can create something that looks exactly like a Vermeer mm-hmm. if you have almost no artistic skill. So the question Whoa. comes, yes, and that's the problem, is people get very defensive by saying, are you saying an artist like Vermeer has no talent? Because people want to believe that artists can craft something from the very base of their soul with no preparation. And that's one of the things that, does it diminish the work he made? Does it diminish the work of someone if they use tools, like a projector or a mirror or anything to create art? And for whatever reason, we know when I go to see a play or watch a film that there were countless man hours put into making it. You're not seeing that. You're seeing the ease right. of, of it being projected or performed. You don't think about all the times that the person had to memorize those lines or rehearse or practice or all the years of mastery of a subject. Or you fall to auteur theory and you put it all on the back of the director, yeah. the writer-director, when there's an entire team. It, takes, it yes. takes a small city to make a studio film. Completely. And those small cities put together become metropolises. Yeah. The one that we live in, yeah. for instance... Right. And it's funny because it's not one director walking through every computer terminal watching every CGI scene done. It's the idea of the director hires and it ripples out through people hiring and trusting other people. Yeah. And it's it's this process that's really fascinating where people believe that because something is seen as being effortless, it's easy to recreate. Or, or mm. if you know how a photo is made, for example, I can sit there and pose and make a selfie right now. Is it artistic because it's easy? That's the thing we're trying to pose in this whole process. And having worked through game design and narration, or narration, narrative creation, you, you're able to sort of appreciate that stuff is very difficult. But through the process, you want the audience to not be distracted by any of that process. You want them to sit there and go on the journey and not be distracted by any individual element, but see the kind of the whole kind of coming together. And so it's interesting how people kind of consume whatever it is about selfies or the idea that something that's easy and ubiquitous is not worth consideration. Mm -hmm. I felt that way. And I still do, honestly. But you can argue that it is worth considering and that selfies could be hung in a museum and be worth being called art. And that's the kind of the overall idea is we wanted to be snarky and have that kind of weird sense of you would walk out having seen weird, interesting stuff and taken your own cool photos that are all selfies and walk out going, is this art? Are the 12 things we've taken pictures of art? Or are they just some frivolous, meaningless thing? Um, so yeah, that's kind of what made me interested in this whole process, is it raised a lot of questions that tied into creation in general, and people, and humanity, and art, and um, yeah. When we had Vance Garrett on, Derek Spencer, our col- another one of our colleagues, mm-hmm. Um, he wrote in to talking on, on the phenomenon of the selfie palace. He was very interested in the idea that these spaces sort of implicitly give agency to the audience Mm -hmm. that indeed, like there's almost nothing but agency involved in that, in that space. Um, 
that's that's a paraphrase of, of Derek's comment there. Um, I wonder what your take on that paraphrase. Yeah, I mean, the idea that... So one of my favorite spaces on the planet is City Museum in St. Louis. I went to college in St. Louis. I was there a number of times. And the first time I ever went, I just... My brain melted. The name hides how cool it is. They really should work on the name. (laughs) But it is one of the coolest places I've ever been. And in that space, you have complete agency to do whatever you want. I mean, within the laws of human... Yeah. You know, uh, it's not nature. like that planet in Rick and Morty where you can die yes. and like the mortality field. Yes, exactly. Like it's not the purge. Like you have yeah. to follow <laughs> basic human. Don't worry, the like, purge is coming, everybody. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, so minus <sighs> that, you can more or less play in the space how you want. You can consume it how you want. You can sit there and do nothing. You can sit there and climb. You can be wild and run around. You can play games, but there is, it's just a freeform playground to experience how you want. And invariably, people do pull out their phones to take photos, as I did. And I love going with people. There is a conference uh, for escape rooms and haunts that happens every year in St. Louis. And I've gone uh, for the past several years. It's convenient to see friends and people I know and go back to the city I went to college in. But there's something exciting about going with people I've never been before. And I always insist we go to a city museum. Mm. Because going with people that have never been before is, is, is the most exciting moment because you see pure joy in the most cynical people you can imagine that just are reduced to children running around in this kind of purity of excitement and exploration. Yeah. And invariably, you do want to pull out your phone. And and that's the sort of thing I realized was pulling out a phone and taking a picture is not necessarily just a vanity. It's of being able to record and have these moments of joy. It reminds me like in the movie Memento, which, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie you find out this character has actually gotten revenge on someone he's been hunting for some time and that he can't remember it. And there's a photo he has of it where he has that pure joy of like, I've done it. Mm. And it's like, this is not killing someone who you want to get revenge on, but it's at that level of that cathartic level of we are reduced to these exciting, fun moments of, of pure happiness. And I want to be able to share that with people and, and have that recorded for posterity. Yeah. I was at a... I was at a concert last night, and they they used one of those bags to lock up our phones. Yeah, and I was actually and, and I was I was down for it. Um, there were parts that were were dragging, and I was like, I could and like at one point, I literally like reached into my coat, pulled out <laughs> the bag with the phone, and just held the phone, turned it over a couple of times, <laughs> contemplated going outside to use it because they had a station where you could, or or just leaving. And I was like, ah, oh, let me let me let me get through and see if the next one's good and it was so i was like that's fine but i like put it back in but when the next one was good there were a couple of moments where i was like oh this is really unique i'd love to share this Mm -hmm. you know like i'd love to and not necessarily share it with everybody but like oh i want to tell you know someone who i like i invited to go along with me who couldn't go and like oh i want to show i want to show this person you know like this this moment that it happened but at the same time, was was fully reminded that the point of the evening was to be there, yes, to be listen, yeah. be present, not not tap out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really, I mean, and concerts are particularly interesting because, like, you can watch people; they will watch the whole damn concert through, through their, their fucking phone. phone. I, it drives me insane. Videoing it. Um, yeah, I I, I, I was it. at I was at Banks, and there were these two girls next to me, and they talked through the entire set. The entire set. 
I'm there to have a religious experience. <laughs> yeah. And Jillian managed to still make it be a religious experience. Even when these two girls was talking, 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 talking. And, and, and they were trying to be nice. Like they offered me the pot they were smoking <laughs> inside <laughs> the Ace Hotel. Um, and I was like, nah, it's cool. I'm, I just hear, I'm a phonomancer. I just need the music. Um, and it's just, it was a great, great combo, by the way. Um, I, uh, I was, I'm just always amazed at the folks who, who can't experience without the documentation. Yeah. Like somehow we've gone, we've gone from like the ego identification being the little voice in our head Mm -hmm. saying, you know, like I'm this and I'm that and I want to this to, to somehow the ego identification being the the performance of yeah. this not just like I'm seeing this but like this is what I saw. Let me live stream right now. It is fascinating because I at concerts get angry when I have to watch a concert through someone else's cell phone. Oh, versus when they bring an iPad. I have not thankfully seen that, but I would get oh. violent. I would get I would get violent at that point. Oh boy. So the idea that you're recording something are you really going to go back and watch that crappy footage in a year? No. Like, just enjoy the moment. Okay, hold on. But I have to admit. <laughs> oh, no. Don't tell me you are guilty of this, Noah. Well, you see, it was a U2 concert, and they had this bridge, and we were down in the in the pit, and this bridge was rolling over us. <laughs> and then Bono was, like, on a bridge right above, like, singing down to the crowd. And I was like... This can't be happening, and I, so. But I have yeah. watched that footage. See, I don't mind that. That's yeah. a moment as opposed to the whole concert. Yeah, no, no, not the whole concert. Yeah. See, I don't mind that. It's... And I'm screaming. I sound like a twelve-year-old girl. <laughs> I'm screaming, well, Bono, I love over you. you. Yeah, yeah. So there, I admit it. I don't like the new album, but like there, I admit it. I'm so like you too. I, th- I think that's. I wouldn't mind that. To me, I try to be considerate of people around me, yeah. which is very rare. Uh, I try to be considerate, and so if my phone or my interactions are disrupting someone else. I try to really moderate, moderate that and change my behavior so it does not impact the enjoyment of the experience with other people. Yes. It. But that's a very rare uh, occurrence. Yeah. No, I, I, I have a solid rule that came out of my LARPing days when um, it's because my players for the Vampire LARP I was running. Masquerade? Uh, yes, of course. Uh-huh. Um, they they want, were trying to talk me into going to this thing called – I would go – uh, to, to go, there was a thing in the Bay Area called the Gaskell's Occasional Ball. Okay. And it was a Victorian ball. Uh, a lot of people went to the Dickens Fair, that kind of, kind of world. Yeah, like yeah. They, they would do it. And it was the Occasional Ball, and it happened like two or three times a year or something like that, right? <laughs> so, and it was, sure it was, and it was, it was great. Like, took it over an old Masonic Center in Oakland, and everyone got dressed up. Like, I did my best, but I was poor, so I couldn't really dress the right way. My players were like, all like, we should do our game at Gaskell's. Like, we could all be playing the game oh. inside. So you're into it, but I overruled. Well, no, no, no. Oh. I was saying, oh, because I could see all the disasters that could come oh, good. from that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I overruled because yeah. I said, you know what? I'm not going to impose yeah. our trip yeah. on someone else's trip. Like, they've got their trip, man. Mm-hmm. And that's that they're in Victorian England and they're dancing very formally. And do and, and I can't do those kind of dances. So I would just hang out, listen to the music, and like look at all the costumes, yeah. right? Uh, my and I was like, no, we're not. It's like, yes, our characters might do this, but we, as the players of this game, we're not going to take our nonsense and put it on yeah, someone else. Yeah, it on the entire evening. Yeah, that's, that's just not. It's just you're just harshing their mellow. Yeah, you know, yeah. like be there, be in their world, 
right? You know, it'd be another thing if they invited us. Yeah, know? and come play or come be part of this. Yeah, because, you, you know, vampires have to go where they're invited. Exactly. See, there's it's right in the rules. Um, we've talked a lot about the, the undergoing, the underlying idea behind Museum of Selfie. Yes. Um, what the F are people going to find there? I mean, you don't have to, like, you have spoilers, but, like, you, you do have to, like, sort of pitch. There's yes. something about food. There's something about, like, yes. prehistoric. something about narcissists. Narcissists. Uh, narcissus. I've been drinking. Yeah. Uh, it's narcissus basically I. a series of uh, about a dozen interactive exhibits that uh, do give players, or not players, I guess guests agency. I'm used to the escape room analogy. We'll talk uh, about escape rooms yeah. in a moment. Uh, they give guests the uh, ability to interact with the spaces however they want. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we have the exhibits that allow you to recreate selfies that reflect a number of different types um, that are essentially... Yeah, that are set, yeah there, are, there are a number of types that we've done a lot of research on. And they're meant to be, on one level, um, very fun, very frivolous, but also, at another level, a little bit sarcastic, a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek. One of our key exhibits, which I think you'll appreciate, is the Iron Throne made of selfie sticks. Um, I'm, I'm my eyes closed. I'm nodding my head. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'll yes. show you uh, once we're done. I'll show you the image of it. Yeah. Um, we had that was in progress. The, it, it, selfie, it is, the selfie throne. Yes, it is completed now. It is done. Uh, is it made of a thousand selfie sticks or mo even more? It, it is made of an indefined number of. Them. <laughs> uh, was it melted by dragon fire? No. It, it was melted by uh, a, fa a wonderful fabricator. So it's not as dramatic. <laughs> he looked for dragon fire, but dragon fire is surprisingly expensive. <laughs> we had to settle for uh, yeah for a fabricator's blowtorch, but um, close enough. It. It's, yeah, so the idea that we wanted some visual humor, and one of them is the chance to climb atop a skyscraper and take a photo without actually having to risk your life. Right. People have died doing this. There, there's such a thing as rooftoping. Yes. Yeah. yeah. People have died doing this. Yeah. And so you can do your own without the Very fear. popular in Russia. Yes. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you can do it without dying. So um, there's that. Uh, we, have a, we have about a dozen. Um, one of my favorites that I'm probably spoiling, but who cares? Uh, early on, we have a timeline that kind of gives you a sense of how all of the different facets of selfies came to be. So art, science, culture, technology. This is a sort of timeline showing everything from the first depiction of humans in art to when Facebook was invented mm -hmm. um, on different timelines around a space that you can kind of turn around and look around it. And in that space, we have a few different examples of different time periods or moments in art or culture. And we have a black and white photograph you can step into. Hmm. It's like, I guess, for people that are of a certain age, you can go into Pleasantville, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, it's essentially stepping into a black and white photograph. Oh, wow. And so you can engage in that space how you want. Um, another one is you can engage in a modern version of Van Gogh's bedroom. Nice. So even though it is a very famous painting of Van Gogh's that depicts a bedroom, uh, we've updated it for the present day. Oh so uh, it's got you know Van Gogh's guitar and his laptop and his TV <laughs> that are all painted in the style of Van Gogh. Oh work. my lord! So this you can basically be in a Van Gogh painting as if it was current. So everything that which we... which weirdly enough things like the Prisma app, yeah, right, like actually do that. And now the Clips app on on iOS and I'll show you like if you haven't messed around with it like it's got yeah we'll play around with that so I think that's the thing is like it, there's something special about not having to put a certain lens or a filter on to be able to create that mm -hmm. that you're just in a weird interesting space yeah and it was meant to be photographed uh, another one yeah so so you get the idea that's those are the ones I think I'm intrigued by that tie into our timeline yeah but then we have 
you know, interesting ones about gyms and bathroom. The bathroom one is actually pretty trippy. It's an optical illusion one that I'm really a big fan of. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting things. But yeah, Tyre and I sat down and came up with this list of stuff we wanted to create. And then we hired fabricators to do it. So um, we come from the game design background. And so for us, mixed with the writing background, you were used to iterating and having drafts. This will be our first draft that we are doing as a pop-up event that we hope is good and fun and people enjoy themselves. But we will be learning from the data we get. What do people respond to? What are they not? And we will be tweaking over the course of the exhibit and then from there deciding what to do after we close. All right. So that's, uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride. And I think... And how long have you been working on this? About nine months? Nine months. Six months? Yeah. It's not something between that. Yeah. And yeah, I was I, I was just initially intrigued by the whole thing I talked about, which was people coming in with a certain idea in mind, whether they're skeptical or whether they're fans. Mm-hmm. And I figured we'd probably have a fair number of skeptics, people in the art world, which the Apollo magazine has already criticized us. Nice. Not the Apollos in the theater. Right. But Apollo is in the artistic magazine, uh, saying that we I've, were... I've heard of the Apollo theater. Yeah. I have not heard of the Apollo yeah, exactly. magazine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it wasn't the Sandman, like, coming out with a cane and, like, pulling us off stage. Right. It was... Um, the critical art magazine that basically said we were the sign of the apocalypse, which, again, it's like the art world is very inaccessible to a lot of people. And that's one thing that really, pisses, so. that really pisses me off because you have institutions like the Getty and LACMA. The Broad is doing a really good job of trying to make it like cool, but it's cool to hipsters. Right. I work with at-risk youth who have no idea what art is and they don't care. And the idea that art is seen as inaccessible both from a financial standpoint for tickets, but also from a standpoint of the highfalutin descriptions of what it means to the meaning of like, is this good to look at? Is this something worth considering? And oftentimes people feel that they don't have the mental tools to stand in a room and look at art and tell you what it means or what they feel about it. And that if you don't like it, it, you're wrong. See, I think I think here in LA, because of our position in in the cultural universe, I kind of feel like our museums do a pretty good job. Like they they try, and I think like, Getty is doing something really crazy coming up mm. that a friend of mine's working on that is going to be bonkers. Well, that's I mean the Getty's one of my favorite places in the world. Like the yeah. Getty Getty proper stuff. I mean the Getty Villa is also awesome. Yeah, if you like old stuff, and I do. But like the Getty the Getty itself, I mean. I'm a nerd for illustrated manuscripts, and those things are just—they're just beautiful. Like I don't, and, and I, I don't know. I, I go to—I go to museums to enjoy the aesthetics of it. Like I go to LACMA. I love uh, Metropolis Two, which is like yeah. the giant like. And I think anyone who likes Legos or Hot Wheels can like really appreciate that. And then once in a while, there'll be something, something there that's one of the other exhibits. It's just like, you know. Well, they did the Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, thing, no, I think, you know? I like, think Lachman's done a really good job with the Kubrick yeah. exhibit, which I was a huge fan of the yeah. curation of that. Yeah. I'm not a Kubrick fan, but I would say the curation of that exhibit was really well done. The Kubrick was great. The del Toro was the great. The Toro, the At Home with Monsters, I thought I really appreciated a lot of. Although I wanted a little bit more out of it, but still, seeing his collection was yeah. so fun. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just. But of course, those both lean into film, which yeah. is, you know, like heavily what LA is you know, sort of about. But there's there's definitely it, it feels both of those institutions feel a little less stuffy than what I well then I mean I'll I'll throw I'll, I'll, I'll throw SF MoMA under the bus and like the SF MoMA <laughs> yeah. like which was when I lived in the Bay Area that was that was our, my museum of modern art and yeah. like you know 
aside from the time that there was a uh, there was a Matthew Barney show, um, <laughs> and there was a, there was basically a resin cast of depending on your point of view, uh, either a whale hairball or a whale poop <laughs> that was like in and and you looked at the thing because there was a whole there was a whole piece about whaling and so one of the things was like this giant recreation of a whaling deck, half of which was like. Destroyed, so like heavy duty environmental yeah. theme, and then right next to it, a thing was called a, a balin or a ba- balin, or I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it, it looked at this, it looked at this giant like tree that had been burned log thing, and I was like, what is this thing? And I looked at a little plaque on the thing, and I was like, all contents of whale stump, and I was like, oh, Oof. it's a whale hairball, <laughs> and then I started cracking up because this dude had done a resin cast of a whale shit, yeah, and put it in a museum and called it art. Which is, you know... I mean, you get back to, like, the Champs ready-mades, which are basically just, like, porcelain toilets with a signature on it. Yeah. So I think that's the challenge that I think a lot of the students I work with have, is that they don't feel they have the accessibility with art. They do that they walk into any kind of institution and feel like, I don't have the tools to describe this. Right. And there's a brilliant scene from The Wire uh, where students are taken to a fine restaurant, Mm -hmm. and they react in a way that's interesting because people, when you feel like you do not belong and that people are judging you and that this space is not for you, people react in a very defensive, like almost lashing out kind of way. Yeah. And people tend to stay away from space so they don't feel welcome. Yeah. And so trying to prove that art is weird. And I think, yeah, you're right. LA institutions have really tried to embrace uh, LA populations to come and see their art. But one of the things is art is really inaccessible for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And when the art world gets snarky and self-important is when I get annoyed. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a layer where if you, can, if you can accept that it's all kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Right? You know, like, and, and, and the secret, the secret for those kids. And like, I, I mean, I, I grew up on, on AFDC and my mom's still on social security. So I grew up pretty pretty broke, but I also came from a family that, you know, go up a couple of generations and they weren't broke. So there were there were cultural things that were handed down to me. Yeah. So like that's why I'm able to navigate these worlds so so easily. It's because of because of the up I was raised a certain way even though we had no freaking money. Um knowing that <laughs> knowing that all of the declarations and like like the talk about and the technicalities, like 90% of it is people posturing and trying to sound exactly like it. they know what they're talking about and it's it's very few very few people actually do like they heard someone use some terminology yes. to explain the ineffable and thus and that's the thing that like sets people off and like keeps them away and on a certain level those kids their their bullshit detectors are going off and they're totally right it's like this is weird and strange and why are they talking about that way yeah. it's because they're bullshit it's us. an emperor's uh, new oh clothes kind God. of scenario completely and one of my favorite things online is the Artie Bullocks generator, which you should totally look up. And it basically it generates random bullocks you can hang up over any kind of art piece or like installation gallery yeah. and have it be your like summation of what your work is. And it's just complete nonsense. Yeah. And it's just a string of buzzwords that people connect and like, oh, this is important. Yeah. Well, it's, it's often fascinating to see a, a, 
a, a placard written in a way that doesn't sound like bullshit. Yeah, like, com- I appreciate, completely. appreciate that so much. One of my favorite things, that, there's a group called Improv Anywhere that does a lot of weird little interesting pranks, and they turned <laughs> a, a subway platform in New York into an art installation. With, but, with just with, Yeah, by yeah. putting beautiful like labels over like next to the subway and next to like the subway map. And they had a few like actors who were dressed like, you know, as casual like yuppies walking around New York, like admiring the subway map. And the, you know, the ad on the street. and like I gotta get Catherine to talk to them. The bum on uh, the corner, like, playing, like, the piano, or, or uh, the keyboard. It's like, all of it had, like, you know, bullshit labels. And, like, <laughs> and some people were walking with, like, the red stickers, like, putting next to the subway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, red stickers <laughs> is what, when you, when you label something sold at a gallery... <laughs> So it was just great the fact that the subway itself was considered like an installation piece <laughs> that has been running continuously since it's been... So like I think it just calls attention to the fact that a lot of art is inaccessible for a lot of people. And the idea that we want anyone that comes in curious about our selfies art, walking out going, I guess people have been doing this a lot longer and maybe they can actually go and see art in a way that is it's okay to call BS on something. It's right. okay to say this is not valid. Right. Just because people write something with a lot of syllables does not mean it's necessarily true. Tangential question, and then let's talk about Stash House for a minute, because uh, we're about 48 minutes into the show. Um, have you ever seen F for Fake? Yes. Okay, good. If you, dear listener, haven't seen F for Fake, do so. Yes. Uh, moving on. Um, Stash House. Yes. Another thing you've been working on for quite some time. Quite some time. Um, this is your escape room. Yes, with my partner, Don. Uh, Don is my writing partner. We met a number of years ago. And yeah, to give a very brief origin story, I came to Los Angeles to write. I was kind of lost in college, and I was studying psychology and classics, which I love the subjects, did not care for the career implications. And so <laughs> I was... to laugh, but... Yeah. No, it's true. And so I, you can do research or teaching. And I'm like, I don't want to do either one. They're like, well, that's basically it. So I was nervous and scared and took a writing course on a whim. Mm. Teacher and I connected and he said, you should go to LA and try to intern and see if you'd like the city. So I told my parents, which shocked the hell out of them because they were like, you're going to go to grad school right. and you want to go to LA to do what now? How much are they paying you? I'm like $8 a day for lunch. And I'm like, uh. But they were incredibly kind to let me come out to L.A. First time as a kid from Kansas, west of Kansas. Mm. So it was a wake-up call of all kinds. But I had my freshman roommate who lived out in L.A. And he put me up for a few weeks while I found a place to stay. I loved it. Interned at a production company that made all the films of the 90s, Eraser and Seven and Outbreak. Um, it was amazing. And The Fugitive, and you name it, they made it. And they were huge. They hadn't made anything since the 90s, but I learned a great deal from them, and it was like drinking from a fire hose. And I loved it. So I came back out after graduation right when the writer's strike began. Oh, Which yeah. is a brilliant time to come out when your industry is essentially in, a, you know, carbonite. Shut down so many, not just writer careers. And it wasn't even that long of a yeah, strike. It was but, but it's amazing. You take out a season mm-hmm. and you nuke career. There are actors I know who, who would probably have careers save they came out during the writer's Yeah, it's just this giant hemorrhaging of, of everyone I knew, all the connections I had made, save for one. Right. Gone. Yeah. And so I came out and I was just, I was I was floundering. I didn't know what to do. And I my money was running out and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I saw a bunch of dead-end jobs and thankfully the one guy who had stayed around was like, 
stick around as long as you can. You can find those dead-end jobs at any point. I got a job doing office managing and PA work and writing web series for HGTV, my first job. They paid crap, but it was a decent job for six months. But then Disney came along as a temp job through a friend of a friend, and I jumped at the chance to work at Disney. And it was soul-crushing. I worked there for eight years, and it was awful. Mm. Um, I'm grateful that I had a job, but I was under the most political of office management styles. Uh, Pure ass-kissing, pure political maneuvering. It had just been these almost like royal family-esque style dynasties running this show. And I do not do well when it comes to authority that has no qualifications for being in a position of power. Mm. So I last as long as I could there, just trying to be like a good team player. Meanwhile, I was writing, and not writing particularly well, but a friend of a friend, the one that actually was the one person that kept his job during the strike, he worked at Lionsgate and introduced me to this guy, Don. I was working on a project, and we decided to finish it together. And through that, we got repped. And I was like, well, I guess we're stuck together now. (laughs) So I was lucky in that Don and I got along incredibly well. We had similar sensibilities about what we wanted to do career-wise, about the things we wanted to make. He worked at Paramount. And so what I would do is I would leave Disney right at 6, bust ass, go down to Paramount, and I would work in a spare office next to his until he was off at like 7.30 or 8. And then he would come over and we'd work until midnight or like 1 in the morning. And so we wrote our first script, and that got us a lot of attention. We got reps. We went around town. We made some really dumb amateur moves. Now, looking back, it's like, you know, what else do you expect? People are all giving you really bad advice then. Yeah. And we were in that holding pattern for a long time, for about four years, where we had written this one thing, got a lot of attention, a lot of meetings, but it didn't do anything for us. And I went from, like, bright-eyed, like, excited, this is, you know, our our career path, I can quit Disney soon, like, our script is going to sell, we're going to be filmmakers, to the industry is morally bankrupt, it's awful, I hate my life, I want to die. Right. And I think realizing the film industry is basically staffed by a series of people that make decisions to keep their own jobs. Very rarely is it yep. a lot of... It's not this creative source of genius. Right. It, it's, it's, it's an industry. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's what industries are. I mean, it, politics, media, anything, once you have a job, you tend to make decisions to keep your jobs. Yeah. I mean, human self-interest. Art is, art is a rare, crazy yes. thing that happens because people go... People, because people get frustrated yes. with things and go like, fuck it, we're going for it this time. And I think like a Paul Thomas Anderson can go create an island because at a certain point he's crafted a name for himself. Right. And certain people who are eccentric who can afford the money, like Megan Ellison, can afford to pay for those people to go sit on their islands and make their crazy art. Right. But for the or rest the of Nolans us... the Nolans who do one, then yeah, one, one, ex- then one. Exactly. Right? And yeah. so, yeah, the Soderbergh, same thing. It's like you do one for the studio, one crazy thing for yourself. Yeah. So I was really disheartened. And Don was really frustrated at work as well. And at a certain point, I was just, I was depressed. I was sad. I was not doing anything of value. It was, the work I was doing was very masturbatory. And I'd come home at night, spend an hour or two in front of my computer typing up something. And it was me going, good job. Like, bravo, you've done it. You've done some work tonight. You can relax now. You put in the words. Yes. The words. Do the words. But yeah, it was, it was man, useless. I, I might as well just sat there, like, banging my fists on my computer. It wasn't good hours. I was giving good hours to a job I hated that was sucking my soul dry. Yeah. And then the wake-up call came from seeing my first um, escape room type thing and my first immersive type show. And those two things alone, just my head exploded. I realized this is what I want. 
people, networking for me has always been hard. I'm on the spectrum somewhere. I have a really tough time networking with people. Me learning how to just deal with people in general has been a trial and error process through most of my life. Hmm. And the networking in film was really hard. And I thought it just sucked. But then I realized I just didn't like the people in film. Um, especially the low, like, you know, low level agency and like CE level. But when I saw people that were making games and theater, this was coming back to all the stuff I had wanted to do just for fun. You know, just random tidbits. I love video games growing up. I designed scavenger hunts for my friends based on scavengers my aunt and uncle designed for me and my cousins when I was a kid. Um, I designed a scavenger for a girl I had a crush on. And I found a scavenger for a weird person in my neighborhood across the street in the park across from my house when I was a kid. Um, those little things are just seeds planted in my head. I wrote a letter to David Fincher when I was in high school. He wrote back. These things just sat there, and nothing ever came of it. And I took Meisner training when I was in high school. I realized I did not want to be an actor after that. Yeah. But two years of intense Meisner training Whoa. when you're a sophomore and freshman in high school. That's fucking weird yeah yeah so those things were all just sitting dormant and then seeing this all of them came back exploding mm-hmm. and being like this is what i want to do it's like that moment in dr strange when he goes on his first trip with the ancient one and it's like yeah. teach me yeah i i was like i want to do this and so every person i'd ever connected with on that level i was like i want to work with you learn from you i don't care what it takes and looking back the first things i saw were complete crap but to a person dying of thirst in a desert, a drop of dirty water doesn't matter. It's still a drop of something that awakens you. Yeah. And so going from there, I just began diving in. I reached out to the escape room people I met. I reached out to the theater people I met. I said, can I learn from you? Can I talk to you? Can I collaborate with you? Just anything for free. Just let me be in the room. And people said yes. And I was blown away by how, if you're sincere, most people will say yes. And that just began my the way I was able to sort of stay alive. So what was interesting is that beyond all of that, I stopped caring about work. I had a very cavalier attitude. And Disney was going through some massive restructuring in the TV division where I was. And people were starting to just like cling to their jobs to the point where they were finding crazy ways to stick to processes that made no sense because they were trying to justify their entire jobs right. and their careers, knowing they were on the chopping block. Right. And when someone would come up to me and say, we want you to do this, I would just start saying no. And they were, I think, floored by the fact that I would just say no. And I just began painting a target on my back. And I didn't care anymore. I just, I stopped caring. And so there was one moment when I made a mistake. Images for Once Upon a Time, I posted spoilers when I shouldn't have. And then I covered it up. It was easier for me to erase the images, knowing my boss was inept. And he should have caught it in five minutes, but it took him two and a half weeks to do it. But when he found out that I was the one that had done it by accident and I refused to correct the mistake, they fired me. Mm. Any other person in that position, they would have given a slap on the wrist. But I had been painting a target on my chest and back for them for so long, loaded the gun and say, here, take a shot, please. Yeah. So I don't blame them whatsoever. And getting fired, like, they had to make a lot of things happen very, very quickly for that to happen. So, like, usually at Disney, when you get fired, you are brought in as you enter the space. You're basically sequestered by HR. You're given, like, a firing speech, and you're escorted off the property without ever going back to your desk. Mm. And they pack up your stuff, and you walk away. That way you don't make a scene or damage anything for the property. Like, you know, they have a lot of IP, and they're terrified of you hurting it or doing something awful if you're connected to IT. Right. It's such an interesting culture that's evolved in the past 20 years where everything's 
predicated in the idea that people are going to freak out when yes. they lose their job. Exactly. Right? Like, which says something about our culture as a whole. Completely. Like in a in a in a dark way on a couple different levels. Because yeah. I, that was not the standard when we were when I was a kid. You know, I bet a couple incidents happen, and then everyone just assumes that you know it's inevitable. But it also says like, well, you know, how desperate is it? Like, you know, like anyway, that's. So it's crazy the fact that... I didn't say I won't get political. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But they pulled me in, and it's clear. I know the moment I was fired because the head of the division was walking by my desk angry and walked away. Like, he only made appearances when he had to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the man in the high castle would come down and, like, go do his meeting to fire you and walk away. And I saw he was called out of, like, a weird sequence. And I was like, hmm, I wonder why he's going down there. And then a Friday at, like, 5.30, I was called in, and it was Friday the 13th. Hmm. Uh, and I was called and they basically said, here's HR lady. Uh, and I'm like, hello. And like, we have to let you go. I'm like, okay. Now I grew up with a mom who was a hoarder. So for me, cleaning is cathartic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in that position. So I'm very neat and orderly and I can feel the idea to collect stuff in my bones. So cleaning it is very cathartic and like fighting that instinct. Hmm. I'd clean my desk months earlier. I had nothing left at the office. So they basically, they fired me. I was like, wait, you're letting me go back to my desk on my own terms? And they were all such pussies. They refused to like do anything like hover over me or watch me. I could have done horrible things. I could have erased so much stuff. But that's, I, I'm not a vindictive person. Yeah. But I was just kind of laughing that they let me go back to my desk on my own terms. And he's like, come back here, give me your badge, and I'm well escort you out. And I'm thinking, screw that. So I went back to my desk. I had nothing to pack up. I grabbed my mug. I erased my old emails. I got my leftovers from the fridge because screw that, I'm going to eat my leftovers from lunch. And I walked out myself. I left my badge at my desk and I walked away. And it was weird being fired. But what was really interesting was that Don was let go from his job a few months prior. Mm. And we're like, this is our chance to really dive into something. So I pulled him in and said, we should do an escape room or something interesting like this in this space. This is storytelling. This is something weird. This is something fun. And we did not come out here to be office peons, to be someone behind the desk answering phones or doing the tasks of some inept leader is stuck in a giant bureaucracy. And that was that was kind of the moment where we just said, screw it. And when we said that, we started getting calls for our scripts. Hmm. We got hired to write something through a friend of a friend, and that actually went into production and got greenlit and was shot. And we're one of the three writers on it. And it's just, it's really surreal. All of our scripts are now optioned. Someone oh, wow. emailed us and said, do you have anything? And it's like, no, every single script we've written is now optioned because we stopped caring. And, and not in the sense of like being cavalier, but I think we probably looked like Gil from The Simpsons, you know, Jack Lemmon from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, loose and ties going, oh boy, come on, buy our scripts, please. We need to get out of our day jobs to going to be like, yeah, if you want to buy it, good for you. Like, okay, if you don't, that's great. But I think we became more confident in our storytelling abilities and also just this weird air of like, we have other stuff going on. So Don lives in Koreatown and he was walking by the space. Um, What had happened was there was an escape room, one of the first ones in LA that we worked with. This guy lives in Ohio and he mentored us. And we were gonna take over his business in LA and just be one of his franchisees. And we spent about three to four months on this project like super hardcore. During lunch breaks, during evenings, we would just try to find a way to make this work. And at the end of the day, it didn't work. The, the contract he wanted to sign was too strict. Mm. And it wouldn't let us write or do things on the side. So we parted ways, but he still was really cool with us. And was still a good friend. And that gave us enough experience to be like, we can do this on our own. Mm. But we want to do it weird and different. 
So Don lives in Koreatown and saw the space available and looked at it and got it for a song. It was in horrible condition. It was, in a, it was a dress shop called Pink Ribbon that was completely abandoned by its owner, including all the merchandise. She just got up one day and left. We mm-hmm. don't know what happened to her. Raptured, abducted by aliens, killed by the mob, who knows. But we made a deal, cleaned out the space, and spent about a year rehabbing it. We used the back as our office to write, and when we had time and weren't stuck on set or doing some other project, we were able to work on it. So it's been a slow process because of that, and people have given us a lot of crap for taking as long as we have. But for the past two months, we've been busting ass to get it up to shape. We've been testing like crazy. And for us, we wanted to test it to the point where we were happy with it. Because I don't want to charge money if it's not good. Mm. So we've had about 40 playtests. You know, when we open, we'll have about 40 on the books. And everything from doing a beta test where a lot of the puzzles were cardboard and paper and ink to now where most of the game is done to, you know, verify that everything is good. We don't want to be stupid and design a puzzle and have to redesign it because we spent money on creating something that was not good. It's like we'd rather have it be vested first through people playing it and interacting with it and experiencing the story that we have, you know, and and giving us feedback and designing based on that. You know, we want people to have fun. The idea that our designs are pure is silly. We are there to entertain you and tell you a story and make you feel smart and have this adventure. And if we're not doing that, then we need to fix it. They do that with something that we're writing is on high, that it's pure. It's like, that's nonsense. Yeah. So the iterative process is really important to us. I, I like that you said in there that we're there to make you feel, feel smart. And like that, that I think is one of the most awesome things about escape rooms is that when you solve them, you feel smart. Yeah. You know, you you feel it, right? You may not have been it. You may not have been it because the puzzle was easier than you thought it was or because you really stumbled through that yeah, one. Yeah. But you feel it. And that kind of dopamine reward that comes from using your brain is really valuable in a world that doesn't ask much of us, that just asks us to like some... Oh God, I was watching, I was watching a musician last night you know, electronic musician, so he's like, he, he might have been using Ableton or something on the computer. Like, yeah. I couldn't really say what he was doing. But, like, you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, so there, here's a white dude, and he's in front of his computer, and he's oh, grooving. And the, out, and the yeah. funny thing is, is, like, there were there were string musicians who were playing. Now, the music was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. But he's there, and he's nodding his head, and he's grooving on it while four women are, like, actually playing. Like, all, you know, it's a string quartet, so it's really happening. And he's there, and, like, when the time comes he hits the space bar and yeah moves on to the next thing and i'm sitting there at one point watching this and like i'm mesmerized visually by the dichotomy of like four musicians using old instruments to create beautiful sounds and bro tapping on a macbook every 20 seconds or so and really <laughs> grooving as he does it and imagining that what he's actually doing is checking his Facebook and it's like do no 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 like and Dave's post now yeah gonna get a link or do a heart with that no 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 find me a cat emoji um is it bad that I feel that like I look at like athletes who are training for the Olympics and like sprinting and running like and then a NASCAR driver like chugging a beer and like driving yeah yeah. 
But I gotta admit, like, if a NASCAR driver can check a beer and drive and not crash, that's true. That's true, dude. How much money would it would make for like drunk NASCAR? I would probably watch that actually. I would. That is like, and then like when Jack Daniels sponsors a car, it makes sense. <laughs> like the the liquor bottles on, and the thing is, it's professional, so it's like it's it's you know it's accepted that's it. risk. That's the next big Whoa. sport. Lots of motorcycles. Maybe it's drunk motorcycle driving. Drunk motocross. Um, so that's that's the spiritual goal of Stash House. Give us the elevator pitch, and then let's let's get out of here because it's been about an hour. Yeah. Actually, it's been almost an hour and ten minutes. It's well, a long you. one. Yeah, uh, Stash House is basically the immersive interactive experience we're trying to push in Koreatown. That you are invited to a business meeting by the entrepreneur Ray Jones, who is a businessman in the Koreatown area. And you discover upon arrival that he's actually a drug dealer who is incredibly ruthless and violent. And that Ray has picked you to join his organization. You discover upon entering that you are now on tape, entering his stash house. His old apartment that he's converted into a testing ground to prove that you are as smart as you look. And in the testing facility, you will have to prove you can observe your environment, think outside the box, and also work under pressure. The pressure comes from the six packets of drugs that are in the apartment and the fact that the LAPD are on the way when you arrive. So it's basically a high-pressure game, traditional escape room style. We did but with an, actual drugs and actual LAPD. No, exactly. Yes. <laughs> All that is true. Um, 911 is in play. Uh, do not reach towards your pockets when they arrive. They will shoot you. Whoa, let's not go there. That's dark. And I don't know if you saw, there's a video going around today. Um, yes. That's, but is that was on top of your mind? Yeah, yeah it's very dark. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah. no, it's, it's meant to be light and fun. It's meant to be a little bit forbidden and dark. But we played around with a thing called Street Baptism before as a prequel event. Basically, that was immersive, interactive, there were no puzzles that were like a Sudoku being tossed to you for no reason. That was a challenge of like doing a prequel to an escape room. And those that event was done in conjunction with Think Tank Gallery as a testing kind of, it, are people, do people care about this? And is it easy to do? Answer is no. It's not easy to do, but yes, people care. But we were able to craft something really unique. So our goal with this, with Stash House, is we're opening a very traditional kind of escape room with the Stash House proper. But... Street Baptism was our exploration with storytelling with puzzles. And a lot of what I do with consulting is how can you inject game design with a narrative? You don't have to make it where it's puzzles. You can make it where it's the way you interact with someone Mm -hmm. or reading a character. If there's actors in the space, if you can interact with them in a way that makes them do certain behaviors or not based on what you're learning about them or the environment. And so we did that with Street Baptism, where all the puzzles were diegetic to the story. Diegetic being that there was not some weird world-breaking thing where it's like, why is this thing locked in this way? Why is there a puzzle here for me to to solve for this? Going back all the way to video games, like, who would build a dungeon in Zelda like this? Who spent the time building this? This is completely unfeasible and unrealistic. Ganondorf is on a spectrum somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. So the idea was, can you make a story fully immersive where the puzzles you're doing actually make sense in that world? And that was my experiment, doing three nights of it. And the nights being the three most important nights of Ray's life. So Ray, Mm. when you meet him, is a Stringer Bell-esque drug dealer who is like at the top of his game. But with Street Baptism, you got to see the three nights that made him who he was. So our plan is we'll be running Stash House as a typical escape room, giving you the sense of like what is present day Ray like. Mm -hmm. But we'll be relaunching Street Baptism later in the late winter, giving you the first three chapters, giving you 
chapter one is his first drug deal. Chapter two is when he decides to make a move on his crew leader. And chapter three is when he first has contact with the police. Mm. And then we'll be adding a chapter four, which is when he meets his first rival. So those are the four most important moments of Ray's life. And you have a hand in it. And it's very intimate. It's basically you and one person. So you and a plus one are you alone. Uh, and it is you going through the experience with a series of actors. It is meant to be very intimate. It is meant to be very, not scary, but very intimidating. Yeah. And it adjusts based on your reaction. So if you are scared or nervous or very passive, the game will react to you and pull back a little bit to give you permission to kind of, or not permission, but like some breathing room. Yeah. If you are very aggressive, the game will react to you as well. So we've added pressure points, but the actors are phenomenal we'll be using the same ones we used before. But yeah, so it's playing around with that space. We want Stash House to be more than just an escape room. We want to have narrative elements. We want to have a story that's ongoing. And what we found with Street Baptist is people cared about this character. And they liked the story. And it was incredibly gratifying. Nice. So that's the goal is to keep pushing what escape rooms are. Is I hate the term. It's not just about escaping. It's not just about a room. You can make it more. Yeah. So I want us to push what an interactive, immersive experience. I mean, hell, to promote Stash House initially, I made a business card that was just an experiment. Can you put an entire escape room on a business card that was actually business card sized? And the answer is yes. It took a lot of trial and error, and I'm still not happy with how it turned out. But that card has traveled the world. I made 200 of them. And in passing them out to enthusiasts and friends, that card got to New York and to Scandinavia. And I've been reached out from people who I don't even know personally, and I can't figure out how they're connected to me through like random six degrees, who have found it, who solved it. So that card was Ray's, by the way. So I made a card for Ray that if you solved it, you got invited to come play Stash House. Nice. We held true to it. So every single person that solved it has been invited to come play for free. That's so fantastic. It's this weird thing where we want to keep pushing what is this, because I think escape rooms are part of something much bigger. Yeah. And we're trying to keep connecting and pushing that. And that's something I'm sure we'll come back to in the not too distant future. Tommy, we're going to do this again. Thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Tommy Haunton for being our guest on the show today. There are links in the show notes. You will find them on No Persinium. That's how you will get to the things that you need to find all the stuff that Tommy is doing. See, that's how we do it now. Um, hey, um, what, what, what do we want to say? What do we want to talk about? Um, it's our part of the show. This is a long one, so we're going to keep it short. Uh, I got Star Wars on the brain. Shocker. Um, I'm not going to talk about it here, but I am writing about it. So, uh, if you, it won't be on no proscenium cause that makes no sense whatsoever. When secrets of the empire comes out, it will be on no proscenium cause that makes total sense whatsoever. Um, Secrets of the Empire being the thing they're doing with the Void. It's actually already out now in Florida and in London. I, uh, I can't see it. Gotta wait till Anaheim. And uh, IDS is getting the way <laughs> of me seeing it. Yeah, boo-hoo. Boo-hoo. I gotta, I gotta go do an event in San Francisco, and so thus I can't go play in Star Wars VR. Let me tell you, um, there's there, the eight-year-old in me is really pissed off with the adult me. It's like, you did what now? What? No, I was staying. 
thing. Um, yeah, I got my tickets already. Don't worry about me. Never worry about me. Okay, four of you can worry about me, but I'm not telling you which four. Um, let's see. Uh, you can tell I'm in a good mood. Um, I almost do want to talk about Star Wars. Uh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> really apologize. Don't turn off the show. There's something coming, and that is this. Uh, I think I mentioned that there are permit problems going on with the uh, with Happy Place and Candytopia. This is something we just learned about like about an hour before we did the show. Um, it's upsetting because there's definitely there's people from the local immersive community who are, are working on Candytopia. I know that, and um, like just the day before they did their press preview last night. I know because I saw like, ju- pictures from Juliet. Um, and indeed Juliet couldn't go see Star Wars with me because, uh, she was at the press opening and now the thing's not opening. So I'm like, Oh, what's the point? Um, we have, um, we have this like permitting crisis here in Los Angeles. We've got this issue where, you know, events in warehouses just, you know, aren't happening. This traces back to ghost ship. Um, this is not a, I told you so. It's mostly just a, could you tell other people, let them know. Um, if you're hearing this, if you know people who are working on stuff uh, and they, they like, this is going to be the one that breaks it through where people go like, oh, wow, this stuff isn't getting permitted. It's like, yeah, we've been telling this for a while now. Um, there's a reason why certain things are going down. Lust experience is um, open right now. That's the, 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 the sort of mid-season experience for lust experience um, anointment. Um, you know, I've been told about the, the space that it's in, uh, which, you know, is like not a space that people were necessarily expecting it to be in. I also happen to have been told beforehand about what they were trying to get and what they weren't able to get because of this permitting issue. This is real. This is not a game. This is not a joke. This is not, you know, just like, oh, those silly kids. This is affecting everybody. And we are working with the city on over at Leia on new ordinances. I mean, this is insane. We're working on new ordinances that will open up a gap between the temporary event permits that people used to use to run this stuff and full on change of use permits, which turns places into venues. We're working on the idea that there'll be a middle ground, but something like that takes time. Uh, It does not move overnight. Um, We are holding a town hall meeting for Leia in January Uh, right now. Mark your calendars. Uh, The this is this is a semi official announcement. I just want to get this out there for everybody. Uh, We are currently looking at January 29th to be when this meeting is and for it to be at Thymeli Arts in, uh, I guess, technically East Hollywood is is where Thymeli is. I'm always trying to remember, like, what what neighborhood is that exactly? Uh, Thymeli is on Western and Santa Monica. Uh, some of you may know it as the place where the second chapter of um, the Speakeasy Society's um, Kansas collection happened. It's also where they did their stand at the Fringe. We've got other events uh, that are going on there. There's going to be an immersive 101 workshop uh, aimed at participants of the Hollywood Fringe, which will happen there just like a week before. Hollywood Fringe is also holding its venue uh, thing, um, town hall meeting there the week before that. So Thymeli, you know, which uh, is, is is coming up, coming up very fast as a hub for the kind of work we're doing. Um, there's, we're going to make a report at the town hall about what the status is. We're hoping to move some things forward. I mean, I got bad news in that this stuff does not change overnight. 
Um, I wish it did. Um, there's also just the fact that, you know, we're pulling together an organization. Uh, there's only so much lobbying we can do. Uh, definitely so much lobbying we can do without financial support and without the, the backing of folks who just know how to navigate these waters. So here's the call out, the unofficial call out. All right. If you're feeling the urge, if you want to get something done, and if you know people who who like know how to write draft legislation for cities, uh, if you know permitting lawyers, uh, if you know folks of that nature, uh, encourage them to come to the town hall. Uh, encourage them to reach out to Leia. Um, you know, contact at Leia.design. We are moving as fast as people who have three jobs can move on this stuff. Uh, we can't take donations currently because we don't have a bank account. Uh, we're not incorporated. Once those things happen, we can. We'll be organized as a 501c6, so it probably won't be uh, tax deductible. Uh, that's the downside. Then again, what is tax deductible these days? Let's not go there. Um, this stuff is all fun and games. Um, until someone gets sued, someone gets hurt, uh, people can't pull permits, and we are still living in the shadow of Ghost Ship uh, where people died, um, where friends of friends of mine died. Uh, we do not want those sorts of things to happen. We want these experiences, no matter how out of control they seem, we want it to actually be safe, right? This is all illusion. Um, that's what this side of it is. Are there adventure sports and other things where the danger is real? Oh, yeah. Should those exist? Oh, yeah. That's not what we do over here. What we do over here is we create experiences that put you through the emotionality and the storytelling of high risk high emotional risk and high emotional reward do it in a way where you don't get your head bashed in your arm chopped off or any of the other physically bad things that could happen to you all right that's what we do over here um yeah yeah I don't know what else to say on that one. Uh, just that uh, 2018 is going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. So get ready. Um, I think one of the great things that's happening on these days across the board um, is that people in general are waking up to um, the stakes of politics, both local and national, and that people are waking up to their power and the power of organizing and the power of lifting your voice and being heard and finding other people who share your concerns and working together to get those concerns addressed. That's what's going on. That's what we'll continue to do. Um, it's not just about folks cornering a market and dictating the terms. Those days are over for everybody. He says in the shadow of one of the largest media mergers that's ever happened and when the whole net neutrality thing is going on. All right. I did a long rant last week about media that turned into like this like spiritual thing. This week, I just want you to take a bit of hope. All right. We're out there. We're on it. We do need you. And if you want to figure out what it is you can do to help, get ready to stand by, get ready to sign some petitions, get ready to write some letters. 
get ready to show up at events, get ready to show up at council meetings. If you're in Los Angeles, if you were in other cities and you were finding similar issues, or if you have solutions, reach out to us, let us know. You can reach out to me, Noah at nopersinium.com. You can reach out to Leah, contact at Leah.design. Keep us in the loop. Help us understand. If you found ways around things, let us know that too. If you found a way around things and you have been run smack dab into it now, let us know that too. We need to track these things. The only thing that's truly got me off kilter about learning this news uh, from a Facebook post, thanks to Aaron Vanek, uh, and thank you, Aaron Vanek, um, is that somebody could have reached out to us sooner and let us know what was going on or talk to us. Um, and it's not like we're not out there. So, um, and we, I don't think we could have necessarily, could we have done something? No. Could we have warned people? Yes. Um, so please spread the word. Let folks know it's real. All right. Um, on that note, um, yeah, you know, the best place these days to do that, it's the no pro slack It's back, baby. Whoa. Is it back? As everything immersive grows past 2,500 people, um, having actual conversations gets a little difficult because also Facebook's algorithm, <clears throat> Facebook's algorithm, Catherine in her infinite wisdom, I know that sounds facetious, but I mean it, uh, has set us up an easy single link through a uh, hero up app, I think it's called <laughs> Heroku. I can't remember at the moment, uh, but there's a link. It'll be here in the show notes. It'll also be on all the different social media stuff. You hit that link and you can sign up. You can basically sign yourself up for the NoPro Slack without having to get an invite. You don't have to ask me anymore. It's automatic. And there are people who are going to the IDS, who aren't going to the IDS, all over the place. Um, like I said, over 300 people, like well over 300 people now. We're, we're marching towards 400 people. And we want, we're doing AMAs all the time. Well, not all the time. We did two last week. We tried to do one this week. We're going to do one or two next week. Um, and we're, we're turning those around. You can find them on, you know, pro itself. So they're, they're archived there. So chances to talk with creators, chances to, particularly if you're interested in the design side of the thing. And I know most of the people who listen to this show, like they're, they're as much about the nerditry of how this stuff is done as anything else. Uh, jump on in and join up on the Slack, connect with other people. Um, it's definitely more creator than fan heavy right now, but fans are welcome. Uh, if you're just super excited about this stuff in general and you want to meet other people who are also super excited about it, it's a great place to start discussions. Uh, Slack is a wonderful tool for that. And now we've got enough people in there to make it really worthwhile for me to push this thing all the time. So come on, join the NoPro Slack. Um, spread word about it to other communities out there because uh, we are growing, 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 reaching critical mass. All right. Uh, I think that's enough for today. I want you to go out there and have fun. Hopefully we'll have fun at events that uh, will get reopened. Um, I do hope so. Until next time, I'll see. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. Oh, look at me. Yeah, you know what I forgot, except I didn't forget. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers, plural, of No Persinium are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, and Lonnie Hanson. I'm Noah Nelson. I forget things, and then I remember them. That's what I do. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.